seated. I, I guess I lied. I thought you'd never sung that before, uh, but that was pretty good uh, for a first time. So uh, thank you for singing out. Uh, let me invite you to turn to our scripture passage uh, this morning in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, we are uh, in Matthew 20. If you are using the Pew Bible on the rack in front of you, you can find our text uh, on page 825. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 to 28. We're in this stage in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus has finished his northern ministry in the region of Galilee, and he is moving towards Jerusalem. And he's going geographically from the north to the south. He says he's going up, because that's what everybody said. You go up to Jerusalem, it's, it's a little bit higher elevation. So they're going, traveling up to Jerusalem. It's the final time he'll go to Jerusalem. And in these transition passages, right, pretty soon, a couple weeks, we're going to see the triumphal entry. He goes into Jerusalem. But before, between when he leaves Galilee and he enters Jerusalem, he's giving his disciples warnings of what's going to happen when they get there. It's not going to be a regular old Passover feast. Something different is going to happen. And in our text, for the third time and the clearest time, he tells his disciples what will happen when they get there. And every time he tells it to them, they react in a certain way. So I'm going to show you both what Jesus says and how the disciples react to what he says. Matthew 20, verses 17 to 28. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we're able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, show us in this text the cup that must be drunk. And as we see in your own words, 
what you endured and accomplished for us? Would it truly change our lives? Would we believe in the Son who has come to ransom many? And by believing, would we be saved? And in this great plan of redemption, make us in this world servants, just as your Son has served us. Meet with us and speak to us in these few minutes, for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've ever had to plan a wedding, uh, you know the frustrations of getting the seating chart just right. <laughs> you know the, the, the little map that you have to work through, who sits where at the wedding dinner or at the reception, and you have to balance out who's going to sit with who, and who gets to sit at the important table, and who is uh, going to be upset if they get stuck with Uncle So-and-so at the non-important table, right? <laughs> and you sort of worry over it and you rearrange it and you make it just right and it's just for a wedding just for some people who are supposed to love you and come celebrate you but everyone's wondering what table they're going to be at it's actually nothing compared to throwing an official dinner at the white house as fraught with being placed at the wrong table and being offended it's actually so serious that uh, our government our taxpayer money goes to fund an office of protocol in the government and within that office, there is a subdivision called the Ceremonials Division. And it's the job of the Ceremonial Division to release an order of precedence every year. Not of presidents, but of precedence of who's more important than other people. And it's a long list. So that if a diplomat shows up and a, a, a justice shows up and a congresswoman shows up, they know exactly who's more important and who sits closer to the, to the front of the table. And they follow this thing uh, like it is scripture. So they don't unnecessarily offend anyone. You see, whether we're attending a small wedding or a grand state dinner, we all want to be as high on the list as possible. We all want to be as close to the seat of power as we can be. We want to be at the bride and groom's table. We want to be at the, the president's right hand. We want to be close to power and position and uh, title. And so when Jesus comes and he turns this whole system upside down, we can sympathize with the disciples who took him a while to figure it out. <laughs> took him a while to figure out that he has not come to sit at the front of the table. He's come to sit at the back of the table. That he's come not to be served, but he has come to serve. And in serving, he teaches us to serve such that we are actually freed from the bondage of wondering how far up the table we can be, of seeking our own position and power and influence and our own greatness. We are set free from that by Christ, to in turn serve like him. And here for the first time in the gospel, his cross takes center stage and it shows us exactly how he's come to serve us and how we are called to serve others. I want to show you in the combination of these two sections that by his cross, Christ has set us free to serve like him. By his cross, 
Christ has set us free to serve like him. It's the cross that's at the center of this passage. And so to understand it, we're going to look at the different reactions to the cross. We see three reactions in our text. First, in verses 17 to 19, we see approaching the cross. And this is Jesus. Jesus approaches his own cross. Verses 17, 18, and 19. I said earlier, there's three times where he foretells to his disciples what's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. It happens in chapter 16, chapter 17, and here for the third time in chapter 20. And each time it gets a little bit clearer, a little more focused, a little more details. The details that take shape here in this final prediction are all the different people that are going to betray Jesus and sin against him. They're actually in this, in verse 18 and 19, there's three guilty parties here. Look at the verses again. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. So we've already learned about the chief priests and the scribes. They're, they're opposing Jesus all along. But someone is going to deliver him over to them. Now, deliver can have a positive sense, deliver out of bondage or something, or it can have a negative sense of betrayal. Jesus is telling his disciples, someone's going to betray me over to the religious leaders that want harm from me. Now, we, we know who it is. It will reveal, he will reveal in time it is Judas. But here is this early allusion to his betrayal into the hands of those who have opposed him. The disciples who have seen him being opposed by the religious leaders, one of their own, will deliver him over to those religious leaders. The second guilty party are those leaders themselves, described here as uh, the chief priests and scribes. So these are the Jewish leaders of the day. These are the ones who have been sending delegates to check on Jesus up there in Galilee. What's he teaching? What's he talking about? How can we confront him? How can we stop him? These are the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees based out of Jerusalem. And they're the ones that Judas turns Jesus over to. And when they get him, Jesus tells us what will happen. The end of verse 18, they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. That word condemn, it's a legal term. There will be a court case. Not a very legit court case, we will see when we get there. But there will be a court case in which the Sanhedrin, right, the collection of the religious leaders, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, will pass judgment on Jesus for the accused sin of blasphemy. They will find him guilty. But there's a problem from their perspective. They don't have the authority to punish him with execution. They're living in an occupied land. The, the Roman government, only they have the authority to put someone to death. And so the Jewish leaders try one of their own, one who they should care for. They find him guilty and they turn him over to the Gentiles. They give him over even to their own enemies that they might punish him. That's the third category of guilty parties here the Gentiles, this is the Romans, under the leadership and authority of Pilate and uh, the Roman soldiers. Look what Jesus describes he's going to receive. He's on his way. And this is what he knows will happen when he gets there. Delivered over, delivered over twice, and then, verse 19, mocked, 
flogged and crucified. He's mocked the, the verbal assault, accusing him of being a pretend king, making fun of him for the title that he claimed to himself, dressing him up so that he might be ashamed and embarrassed. The verbal assault is followed by the physical assault, the flogging, the whipping, or the word used other places, scourged. The Roman whip embedded with pieces of sharp metal and bone used on his back and his sides. And that can't compare to what comes next and finally his crucifixion. First time he tells us he knows how he's going to die. The death of a criminal. The death of severe agony. A death of physical torture. And he tells his disciples something new here. Something new for the first time. The details of who and what, but particularly how he will die. And it is by crucifixion. It is by the Roman cross. We cannot separate, as we understand the the life and death of Jesus, we cannot separate the fact that he died from the way that he died. The way that he died is crucial in understanding what he did then and what he does for us. Because what we often associate with the cross is just the physical agony of it, the, the, the torture of it. But there was also the point of humiliating the criminal upon the cross. It was an object that was intended to bring great shame and humiliation that the, that the accused and condemned criminal was hanging and mocked and scorned and humiliated in the eyes of all who pass by. In no way is this a hero's death. I mean, nobody wants to die, but you could think of ways to die that would be somewhat heroic, right? They'd be remembered in family lore. It would be remembered in song, right? You could maybe imagine soldiers getting geared up to defend their family and their nation and possibly dying a hero's death. But this isn't that at all. This is a shameful criminal's death. This is the type of death that people following him should start jumping ship, right? As rats jump a sinking ship. And this is what we see begin to happen. They don't have anything to do with this. Maybe we'd follow you to a heroic death. But this? The Roman cross? And yet Jesus endures. He tells us twice going up to Jerusalem. The prophet Isaiah describes the Messiah to come as the one who sets his face like a flint. It's a metaphor for determination, maybe even stubbornness. Everybody else would be scared away by this, but he is determined and set to go and endure. And he alone knows the shame and the pain and the agony that he will endure. And he sets his face like flint. We're the opposite, right? I mean, we live amongst a flaky people, let's be honest. And we're top of the list, right? I mean, we bail on any commitment as fast as we can if we don't want to go do it, right? We're quick to cancel plans or we're quick to not show up. And our, I mean, you know, you know what it's like for someone to cancel on you last minute, to bail out on a commitment? We are a flaky people, but not Jesus. 
If ever anyone had an excuse not to show up for an appointment, it was Jesus, right? He knew where he was going. He knew what would happen when he got there. But he did not turn aside. He endured the cross, despising the shame. What assurance that gives his people this morning. That he would endure all the way. It wasn't some accident that he fell into, an accidental savior. No, he knew what he bore. He knew the guilt of your sin that he carried on his shoulders, sh- shoulders as he went to Jerusalem. And he bore it anyway. He knew all the punishment he would receive on your behalf. And he went anyway to honor his father and to love his people. The gruesome horror and shame of the cross embraced by our Savior, not turned aside, but who approached it to the very end. How would his followers respond to such news? How would they respond to hearing of this cross? The first time he predicted his death, you remember what happened? Peter took him aside and rebuked him. Not a great response, okay? The second time in chapter 17, we told about his death. Uh, We are told, quote, the disciples were greatly distressed. They didn't get it. Well, I think the third reaction is actually the worst of all. Uh, We see that in verses 20 to 23, and that's avoiding the cross. Jesus approaches the cross. Here's the reaction, avoiding the cross the cross. You see the title of the sermon, The Cross Before the Crown. How many of us would rather the title of the sermon just be The Crown, right? (laughs) Get his cross out of there and anything I got to follow him, get that out of the equation as well. I just want the crown. There's a popular song uh, right now by a group called AJR. The title of the song is The Good Part. You've probably heard it and it is Uh, about the difficulties of life and wanting to just have the crown and the glory and not the suffering. And the refrain of the song is, life's so hard, can we skip to the good part? That sounds good to me, right? (laughs) Life's so hard, can we just skip to the good part? That's what comes out in the questions that are to follow. Look, as we pick up in verse 20, at the desire for success. The desire for the good part. It comes in the form of a mother. Verse 20. The mother of the sons of Zebedee. So that's James and John. Some of his, two of his disciples, two of his main guys. Uh, close to him. Right? She is uh, uh, probably Mary's sister. And thus Jesus' aunt. So she comes to him to request on her son's behalf. Her request, to understand it rightly, go back with me a chapter at the end of verse 19, verse 28. Because there, Jesus is speaking of how the rich, uh, it's harder for the rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven, harder than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And Peter is surprised at this, and he is surprised that only God can save, and he's worried, as the disciples are, that if they are making sacrifices for Jesus, and God does not reward good works, but it's by grace alone, then sort of what's the point of their sacrifices? And Jesus reassures Peter with this promise. Verse 28, Truly I say to you, in the new world, 
When the Son of Man will sit on the glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. What comforting news for disciples who have left everything to follow Jesus. They will receive and inherit these twelve thrones. Let's go back to our text. So mom comes, and she doesn't want her boys to have just any old throne. She wants them to have the two best seats of the twelve thrones. It's not good enough that they're elevated above the rest of creation. (laughs) She needs them to be the top two of the 12 on the thrones. Now, they all all have this problem because speed ahead in a second. The other 10 get jealous because, well, they want those two seats, right? (laughs) I mean, you're sitting at the best seats in the house, but it's not quite good enough. She wants her boys to be right next to Jesus. She wants them to get the best. The mom wants for her sons a position of power and authority and exaltation. I can't believe I'm going to do this, but I'm going to call out moms on Mother's Day, okay? Y'all, be, y'all pray for me, okay? Uh, I won't be greeting after the service. We're like this sometimes, aren't we? We don't only want the best for ourselves. That we have to have the best for our children. There's a name for this. It's called helicopter moms. You've heard this phrase before? And dads, don't worry, I'll come to you in a second. <laughs> helicopter moms. The idea of a helicopter hovering over, sort of hovering over children. Always clearing the way for them. Always removing any hardships they might face. Always going to the coach for an excuse. Always going to the teacher Arguing for their grade, always going this and going that, and always making sure that their kids get the very best and have the best of the 12 seats, right? It's not good enough to make the team, you gotta be a starter. It's not good enough to be a starter, gotta get the ball all the time. It's not good enough to get the ball all the time, gotta be an all star, right? Stepping up and up and up. And just so you know, it's not just the mom, the, her boys are right there with her, okay? Jesus asked a question afterwards to them. In Mark's gospel, it's actually the the sons asking Jesus the question. They might have egged mom on to ask the question, right? I don't know. They want the good part, and it's as if they are deaf to what they just heard. They just heard about the cross. And all they can ask about is the throne. This is the human predicament, is it not? That we are never satisfied we always want more. We always want more. We're always looking around at other people and wanting more. And this is just a repeat of what we saw in chapter 18, verse 1, when they came to Jesus and they said, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's just it again, isn't it? It's how the mom's saying, my sons are the best, right? Right, Jesus? Oh, the death of comparing ourselves always to others. Kids, you know this. How many of you on... Christmas morning have opened a present and it is awesome and it is so cool and it's exactly what you want and then you you got to check what did brother get you got to look over and make sure yours is cooler than his right remember you got that truck you wanted but it's green and he got the blue one and blue's your favorite color right and all of a sudden this awesome truck and this great Christmas morning is ruined because he got the blue one right you're stuck with the green truck that you wanted We can rag on kids. We can rag on moms. This is all of us. This is all of us. We just want to skip to the good part. 
Jesus gives us a reality check. The reality check, just real quick, let me insert the cross into this equation, okay? This is the reality check. It's a reality. Usually parents give their kids the reality check, right? Well, now it's Jesus giving the mom a reality check. And it comes in the form of what he calls a cup. He says in verse 22, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Let me tell you about this cup. Psalm 75, verse 7. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed. And he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. That's the nasty bottom part in a cup of wine. The wicked of the earth drink the cup of God's wrath all the way down. Jesus tells us that he drinks that cup. He drinks the cup that is reserved for the outpouring of the wrath of God. It's the cup that he prays about in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prays, let this cup pass from me. The same one who set his face like flint, enduring the cross, headed towards Jerusalem, even he in that final moment, knowing all that he would face as the cup of the wrath of God is poured out on him. And he asked them, are you able to drink the cup? And they say, we are able Are you listening, guys? <laughs> they don't even say, I'm not sure, Jesus, maybe. They don't say, I believe, help my unbelief. They don't say, I will try, but I'm not sure I can handle it all. They say, in no uncertain terms, we are able. We are able to take the cross in order to get the crown. Jesus could have blown him up right then, right? <laughs> And says, he answers 23, you will drink my cup. They actually, they won't in the short run, but if we follow the lives of James and John, they will. James dies the death of a martyr in the book of Acts. John in his old age is imprisoned for the sake of Christ. They, like the other disciples, will drink some of that cup. They won't drink it down to the dregs but they will drink some of it. It's a reminder, it's a reality check that in the Christian life, the cross comes before the crown. And following Jesus means we don't skip to the good part. (laughs) We follow him to the cross that we receive the crown. Let's check it. Let's check back in with mothers for a second. Of course, you want worldly success for your children. Of course, you want them to do well. Of course, parents want their kids to thrive. But is there a way that we want worldly success more than we want our children to follow Christ? What is our ultimate goal and prayer and hope for our children? That they don't face suffering or that they follow Jesus? And if you're a Christian, I know how you answer that. But the challenge we face is we actually have to live in a world of suffering. 
And we actually have to watch our kids go through hardships. And sometimes we make decisions for the Lord and for our children that means harder things will come into their life than it would if we weren't Christians, right? Sometimes we help our kids avoid suffering so much that we don't actually help them follow Jesus. We teach them that this life is about wearing a crown when we should teach them that this life is about being shaped by the cross of Jesus with the hope of the crown. We don't teach ourselves, we don't teach our children to skip to the good part. But look what the good part is as Jesus finishes. What about those thrones? Who gets to sit where on those thrones? Let me tell you who gets the best seat on the throne. It's the 11th hour hour men and women that we saw last week. It's those who don't deserve it. Mom thinks her kids deserve it, so they're going to get it. Remember Jesus telling them, he rebuked Peter with the whole parable last week of the, of the, the generous master. That was all a rebuke for this mindset of getting the throne. It's all by grace. The Father grants by his grace and his grace alone. The mother doesn't seem to get it. The sons don't quite yet get it. They will. They will come around It will take some time. Right now, they just want to avoid the cross. Let me show you finally then in our text that as Jesus approaches the cross that we want to avoid, we follow him, we learn to accept it. Here's our third reaction to the cross is we learn to accept the cross. Verses 24 to 28. Here's where the other 10 chime in. This isn't fair, Jesus. They're mad. I think they're mad because they didn't think of it first, right? Wait, we can actually get one of the best seats? Why didn't I call shotgun, right? Like, I didn't know that was an option. Jesus gives them a command. And the command is, let me just say it in simple terms. We put others first because Christ puts us first. We put others first because Jesus puts us first. Look what he calls them to. He calls them to not follow the example of, of the Gentiles, which is an example of worldly greatness, that greatness and ruling is used to lord over and exercise authority. He's not actually knocking the Gentiles. He's, he's talking about any conception of worldly greatness that is defined as selfishness or self-serving. And he commands them not to follow after this Gentile model of greatness. There's a different model of greatness, and that's the model of the Son of Man. And they are to follow the model of Jesus. You want to be great, he says? You'd be a servant. You want to be first? You'd be a slave. You embrace and accept the lowest place in the house and the family of God. Jesus is our example of this. You don't see examples of this in the world. Christ is our example of this. He says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The, the, the word here for serve is the same word for deacon. A deacon, the title of deacon is a servant. And so you see that word both officially used and just used like this, to serve. We can actually translate this. The Son of Man came not to be deaconed, but to deacon, right? He is the great deacon, the one who serves his own people. So we are to follow Christ in accepting the cross and serving. 
He tells us in Philippians 2, have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. His mind of humility is ours in him. It's not a mind of greatness. It's a a mind of lowness, right? Of seeking the lowest position. He gives us a command to follow him. And then he tells us in that final half of verse, the basis for this command. He tells us how does Jesus serve in ways that you'll never be asked to serve. That final line, to give his life as a ransom for many. Remember we've read that he's betrayed and he's delivered and he's condemned and he's crucified. That's all stuff other people are doing to Jesus. But here he sets us straight because he lets us know in this final verse that he gives his life. As he says in John 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. He goes to lay down and give his life. And the purpose is his ransom for many. This is the glorious news of the gospel. The life of Christ is given as a ransom, as a payment for a price. What does that tell you about where you are without Jesus? It tells you that you're enslaved and you're imprisoned and you're dead in your trespasses and sins. That you cannot pay the price. The price is too big. Which you have incurred indebtedness because of your own sin and guilt. You can never pay. You are under the sentence of death. So he pays the ransom price. And the price is life for life. This is why the cross is not a hero's death. It's a criminal and a coward's death. Because it's the death that we deserve. And he took our place. He is the hero taking the death of the coward. In order to give us the cup of blessing. And you may wonder, is that price enough? Is the ransom price enough? Has it all been paid? And the answer is given to us, not in words, but in actions. The answer is the answer of the resurrection from the dead. That Christ is raised from the dead is the assurance and the promise to us that the Father, the judge, accepted the payment paid. He accepted the ransom so that you and me, many in the verse, may be set free may be given life. We end this passage asking, do you have a price on your own head or has it been paid? Because the payment is sufficient. Come to Christ. Come to him in faith. Believe upon his cross that his death might cover and pay and cleanse all of your sin. You see, there's a connection here between his cross as the way we're saved and his cross as the model for us to live the servant-hearted life. Because without the cross, we are enslaved to our selfish desires. Without the cross, we have to get the top seat at the table. Without the cross, we have to be first. It depends upon us. We have to earn it. We have to be great. Without the cross, we are enslaved to our selfish desires. We insist on our own place. We insist on recognition. We're easily offended. We take snubs to heart. But with the cross, we are set free from all of that. We are set free not to serve ourselves, but to serve others. We are set free to serve not as a way of control, but as a way of love. 
We are accepted and beloved by God. We don't need that from others. We get placed last at the table. Who cares? I've been brought in the kingdom as 11th hour men and women. Who cares about a snub in this life? You want to talk about seating charts. The only seating chart that matters is the one in the kingdom of heaven. And where is Jesus? He is on his knees washing the feet of his unworthy and his undeserving disciples. By his cross, Christ has set you free. Now go and serve him. Let's pray. Our Lord, show us our bondage to sin this morning. Show us that massive debt that we could never pay and the sufficiency of your cross. Make it true and real in our eyes, not as something that we hide from and avoid, but something we rejoice and revel in knowing that it is the most beautiful sight in all the world because it is the redemption price by which we are saved. And as saved and redeemed and delivered and ransomed people, make us after your own image. Make us to follow you on the path of the cross, knowing the promise of the crown, but trusting in you. Give us strength to serve and to love and to lay our lives down, we pray in Jesus' name.